Lesson 9 for August 19 through to 25, Paul's Pastoral Appeal. Sabbath afternoon, August 19. Before we start, let's pray. A Heavenly Father, we thank you that this letter of Paul to the Galatians was written, so that each of us could read it almost 2,000 years later. And as we do, we find things there that enlighten us as to what the church was like then, how you worked with the church through people like Paul and the others, and how we can find for ourselves in reading your word information, but also the spiritual content that will help us with our daily lives. And now as we look into the mind of Paul, as he discusses some very important topics today in a pastoral sense, we pray that we may be guided and that your name may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 12. Friends, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. That's from the New Revised Standard Version. Galatians 4.12, let's read that again. Friends, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. As we've seen so far, Paul did not mince words with the Galatians. His strong language, however, simply reflected the inspired passion he felt concerning the spiritual welfare of the church that he had founded. Besides the crucial theological issue Paul was dealing with, the letter to the Galatians, in a broad sense, also shows just how important correct doctrine is. If what we believed were not that important, if doctrinal correctness did not matter all that much, then why would Paul have been so fervent, so uncompromising in his letter? The truth is, of course, that what we believe matters greatly especially concerning the whole question of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through to 20, Paul continues his discourse, though he changes his approach at least a bit. Paul has made a number of detailed and theologically sophisticated arguments to persuade the Galatians of their errors, and now he makes a more personal pastoral appeal. Unlike the false teachers who had no true interest in the Galatians, Paul reveals the genuine concern, hope and love of a good shepherd for his wayward flock. He was not just correcting theology, he was seeking to minister to those whom he loved. Sunday, August 20, The Heart of Paul Question. Read Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through to 20. What is the thrust of Paul's message in these verses? Galatians 4, beginning at verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? 
For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. The initial indication of the concern that weighs heavily on Paul's heart is his personal appeal in verse 12. The appeal follows immediately after Paul's insistence that the Galatians become as I am. The significance of the word entreat or beseech is unfortunately not fully conveyed in some translations. The word in Greek is diomai, which is d-e-o-m-a-i, although it can be translated to urge or to entreat, the Greek word has a stronger sense of desperation connected to it, particularly when we see it in Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And Second Corinthians 8, verse 4, Imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And Second Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 2, But I beg you that when I am present I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh? Paul is really saying, I'm begging you. Paul's concern, therefore, was not simply about theological ideas and doctrinal points of view. His heart was bound up with the lives of the people who were brought to Christ through his ministry. He considered himself more than just a friend. He was their spiritual father. And, they were his children. But even more than that, Paul likens his concern for the Galatians to the worry and anguish that accompany a mother in childbirth, as uh, we read in Galatians 4 verse 19, which I'll read again here right now. My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul had thought that his previous labour had been sufficient for their safe delivery when he founded the church. But now that the Galatians had wandered from the truth, Paul was experiencing those labour pains all over again in order to secure their well-being. Question. What goal did Paul have in mind for the Galatians? What result did he want to see from all his labour in their behalf? Let's read that text again. My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4.19 Having first described the Galatians as being formed in the womb, Paul now speaks of the Galatians as if they were expectant mothers themselves. The word translated as formed is used medically to refer to the development of an embryo. Through this metaphor, Paul describes what it means to be Christian, both individually and collectively as a church. To be a follower of Christ is more than just the profession of faith. 
It involves a radical transformation into the likeness of Christ. Paul was, as Leon Morris writes on page 142 of his book Galatians, not looking for a few minor alterations in the Galatians, but for such a transformation that to see them would be to see Christ. End of quote. And so to finish the day, in what ways have you seen the character of Christ manifested in your life? In what areas do you still have a lot of growing to do? Monday, August 21, The Challenge to Become Question, read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Philippians 3.17, 2 Thessalonians 3.7-9, and Acts 26, verses 28 and 29. What is Paul saying there that is reflected in Galatians 4.12? How are we to understand this point? Well, let's start at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Philippians 3 verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us, for a pattern. And the next text is Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labour and toiled night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. And Acts 26, verses 28 to 29. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuaded persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And now we compare that with Galatians 4.12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Several times through his letters, Paul encourages Christians to imitate his behaviour. In each situation, Paul presents himself as an authoritative example that believers should follow. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul offers himself as an example of how the believers in Thessalonica should work to earn their own living and not be a burden to others. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul calls upon the Corinthians to imitate him in placing the welfare of others first. However, Paul's concern in Galatians appears to be somewhat different. In Galatians 4.12, Paul does not ask the Galatians to imitate him. Instead, he asks that they become as he is. He is talking about being, not acting. Why? The trouble in Galatia was not unethical behaviour or an ungodly lifestyle as in the church in Corinth. The issue in Galatia was rooted in the essence of Christianity itself. It was more about being than behaviour. Paul was not saying, act like me, but be what I am. 
The exact terminology in Galatians 4.12 occurs in Paul's appeal to Herod Agrippa II in Acts chapter 26.29, where Paul writes, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. In other words, Paul is referring to his experience as a Christian, a foundation that rests on Christ alone, a faith that trusts in what Christ has done for him and not in his works of the law. The Galatians were placing greater value on their behaviour than on their identity in Christ. Although Paul does not specifically say how he wants the Galatians to become like him, the context of the situation in Galatians indicates it was not a blanket statement that covered every aspect and detail of his life. Because his concern was with the law-centred religion of the Galatians, Paul surely had in mind the wonderful love, joy, freedom and certainty of salvation he had found in Jesus Christ. In light of the surpassing wonder of Christ, Paul had learned to count everything else as rubbish, as he expressed in Philippians 3 verses 5 to 9, and he longed for the Galatians themselves to have that same experience. We'll read Philippians 3 5 to 9. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. And so to finish the day, is there someone you know, other than Jesus, who sets a good example for you? If so, what are the qualities of that person that you find so exemplary? And how can you better reveal those qualities in your life? Tuesday, August 22, I have become as you are. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. What does Paul say in these verses that can help us understand better his point in the latter part of Galatians 4.12? And we'll also look at three other sets of verses as well. First of all, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I may win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. 
And let's read Galatians 4.12 just to keep ourselves on track. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. And we'll also look at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through to 24. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears? Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 to 13. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if any one sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And, because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ.' 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through to 14. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Galatians 4.12 can seem a little confusing. Why should the Galatians become like Paul if he already had become like them? As we saw in yesterday's study, Paul wanted the Galatians to become like him in his complete faith and confidence in the all-sufficiency of Christ for salvation. His comment about having become like them was a reminder of how, although he was a Jew, he had become a Gentile without the law, so that he might reach the Gentiles among them with the gospel. As the great missionary to the Gentile world, Paul had learned how to preach the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 9, although the gospel remained the same, Paul's method varied depending on the people he was trying to reach. Timothy George writes in his commentary, Galatians, page 321, Paul was a pioneer in what we call today contextualization, the need to communicate the gospel in such a way that it speaks to the total context of the people to whom it was addressed. Paul's own comments in 1 Corinthians 9.21 indicate that he believed there were limits to how far someone should go in contextualizing the gospel. He mentions, for example, that while one is free to reach out in different ways to Jews and Gentiles, this freedom does not include the right to live a lawless lifestyle, for Christians are under the law of Christ. Although contextualization is not always easy, George continues on page 321 and 322, insofar as we are able to separate the heart of the gospel from its cultural cocoon to contextualize the message of Christ without compromising its content, we too should become imitators of Paul. End of quote. And so to finish today, it's so easy to compromise, isn't it? Sometimes the longer one is a Christian, the easier compromise gets too. Why might that be so? Look at yourself honestly. How much compromise has crept into your life? And what have been the ways you have justified it? How can you turn this around in areas in which you need to do so? Wednesday, August 23, Then and Now Paul's relationship with the Galatian believers was not always as difficult and frigid as it has now become. 
In fact, as Paul reflects on the time when he first preached the gospel in Galatia, he speaks in glowing terms of how well they treated him. What happened? Question. What event seems to have led to Paul's decision to preach the gospel in Galatia? Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. Apparently, it was not been Paul's original intention to preach the gospel in Galatia. Some sort of illness, however, overtook him on his journey, forcing him either to stay longer in Galatia than expected or to travel to Galatia for his recovery. Mystery surrounds the exact nature of Paul's malady. Some have suggested that he contracted malaria. Others, on the basis of Paul's reference to the Galatians' willingness to pluck out their eyes and give them to him, suggested that it was perhaps an eye disease. His illness also may have been connected to the thorn in the flesh he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Whatever Paul was suffering from, he does tell us it was so unpleasant that it became a trial to the Galatians. In a world where illness was often seen as a sign of divine displeasure, Paul's illness easily could have provided the Galatians with an excuse to reject him and his message. But they welcomed Paul wholeheartedly. Why? Because their hearts had been warmed by the preaching of the cross and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What reason could they give now for their change of attitude? Question, what might have been God's reasons for allowing Paul to suffer? How could Paul minister to others when he was struggling with his own problems? Well, we'll look at a few verses here. Galatians chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through to 12. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh." So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through to 10. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Whatever Paul's illness was, it certainly was serious, and it easily could have 
provided him with an excuse either to blame God for his problems or simply to give up on preaching the gospel. Paul did neither. Instead of letting his situation get the best of him, Paul used it as an opportunity to rely more fully on God's grace. George continues in pages 323 and 324, Time and again, God has used the adversities of life, sickness, persecution, poverty, even natural disasters and inexplicable tragedies as occasions to display His mercy and grace and as a means to advance the gospel. End of quote. So to finish the day, how can you learn to let your trials and suffering make you lean more upon the Lord? What other options do you have? Thursday, August 24, Speaking the Truth Question. Read Galatians chapter 4, verse 16. What powerful point is Paul making here? In what ways might you yourself have experienced something similar? And we're going to look at texts from John 3, Matthew 26 and Jeremiah 36. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, let's look at the other text, John 3.19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And Matthew 26.64 and 65, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. And Jeremiah 36, 17 to 23. And they asked Barak, saying, Tell us now, how did you write all these words? At his instruction? So Barak answered them, He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princes said to Barak, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. And they went to the king, into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the hearing of the king, and in the hearing of all the princes who stood before the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month, with a fire burning on the hearth before him, and it happened, when Jehudai had read three or four columns, that the king cut it with the scribe's knife, and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth, until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. The expression, speaking the truth, often has negative connotations, especially in our day and age, when it can be viewed as a hard-hitting, no-holds-barred, spare-no-enemies tactic of telling someone the facts, no matter how unpleasant or unwanted they may be. 
If it were not for Paul's comments in Galatians 4.12-20 and a few other comments scattered throughout his letter, one might mistakenly conclude that Paul's interest in the truth of the gospel outweighed any expression of love. Yet, as we've seen, though Paul was concerned about the Galatians knowing the truth of the gospel, that concern arose because of his love for them. Who hasn't experienced personally just how painful it can be to have to chastise someone or, in plain terms, speak truths to them or her that, for whatever reason, he or she doesn't want to hear? We do it because we care about the person, not because we want to hurt them, though at times the immediate effect of our words is hurt or even anger and resentment against us. We do it anyway because we know it is what the person needs to hear, no matter how much he or she might not want to do so. Question. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 17 to 20, what is Paul saying about those whom he is opposing? What else is he challenging besides their theology? Galatians chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. In contrast to the candour of Paul's gospel, by which he risked the possible ire of the Galatians, his opponents were actively courting the favour of the Galatians, not out of love for the Galatians, but out of their own selfish motives. It is unclear exactly what Paul means when he says that his opponents want to shut you up in verse 17, though this perhaps refers to an attempt to shut them out of the privileges of the gospel until they first submit to circumcision. And so to finish today, think of some incident when your words, however truthful and needed, cause someone to be angry with you. What did you learn from the experience that could help you next time you need to do something similar? Friday, August 25. From the book The Acts of the Apostles, page 385, 386 and 388, we read, In the Galatian church, open, unmasked error was supplanting the gospel message. Christ, the true foundation of the faith, was virtually renounced for the obsolete ceremonies of Judaism. The apostles saw that if the believers in Galatia were saved from the dangerous influences which threatened them, the most decisive measures must be taken the sharpest warnings given. An important lesson for every minister of Christ to learn is that of adapting his labours to the condition of those whom he seeks to benefit. Tenderness, patience, decision and firmness are alike needful, but these are to be exercised with proper discrimination. 
to deal wisely with different classes of minds under varied circumstances and conditions is a work requiring wisdom and judgment, enlightened and sanctified by the Spirit of God. Paul pleaded with those who had once known in their lives the power of God to return to their first love of gospel truth. With unanswerable arguments, he set before them their privilege of becoming free men and women in Christ, through whose atoning grace all who make full surrender are clothed with the robe of his righteousness. He took the position that every soul who would be saved must have a genuine personal experience in the things of God. The Apostle's earnest words of entreaty were not fruitless. The Holy Spirit, wrought with mighty power and many whose feet had wandered into strange paths, returned to their former faith in the gospel. Henceforth, they were steadfast in the liberty wherewith Christ had made them free. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, dwell more on the whole question of suffering and how God can use it. How do we deal with situations in which nothing good appears to have come from suffering? And two, meditate on the idea of Christ being formed in us. What does this mean in practical terms? How can we know that this is happening to us? How do we keep from being discouraged if it's not happening as quickly as we think it should? And to summarise this week's lesson... Having made a number of detailed and theologically sophisticated arguments, Paul now makes a more personal and emotional appeal to the Galatians. He begs them to listen to his counsel, reminding them of the positive relationship they once shared and of the genuine love and concern he has for them as their spiritual parent. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Innocently Jailed, Part 2. Every day the police questioned Prabha. They beat her hands and woke her in the middle of the night for further interrogations. They questioned Prabha's brothers and mother, trying to find some thread that would incriminate her. How long had she planned this robbery? Where had she hidden the gold and rupees? Prabha begged her family's gods to help and promised to shave her head if they would free her. But nothing happened. The questioning continued and Prabha grew more weary. One night, as she slept on the cement floor, she dreamed that a man in white touched her and told her not to be afraid. I am with you, he promised. Soon you will be free. Who are you? Prabha asked the man. I am Jesus, he answered. The next day, the police questioning continued, but this time, when they beat her, instead of crying, she prayed, Jesus, if you are the true God, please help me. Two hours later, she was released from prison, but she had to return the next day for further questioning. Every day, Prabha went to the police station. If they had a new clue, they questioned her about it. If they caught a thief, they called her to identify him. This continued for more than a year. Prabha remembered her dream and she and her family began attending a Christian church. 
One day, a Seventh-day Adventist lay member visited Prabhu's home. He offered to teach them more about Jesus. When he told them about the Sabbath, Prabhu's brothers challenged him. Why do Christians worship on Sunday if the Bible commands them to worship on Sabbath? The Adventist explained that the Sabbath was established at creation, affirmed in the Ten Commandments and honoured by Jesus, even after his death. A few weeks later, the Adventist invited Prabhu's family to attend an evangelistic meeting. They agreed and invited some friends. Following the meetings, Prabhu and her family were baptised. Soon after Prabhu's baptism, the thieves who had killed Ma were arrested. The police asked her to identify them. In an ironic twist, the families of the thieves asked Prabhu and her family to pray for their imprisoned husbands. The thieves served only one year in prison. Six of the eight accepted Jesus as their Lord, and one of them is now a lay preacher. The two thieves, who refused to become Christians, died violent deaths. Good came from Prabha's troubles. Her family found Jesus, thieves were converted, and Prabha now serves as a Bible worker. And Prabha Mamadi lives in Visianagaram in India, where she continues to serve God. And it just shows that God is always faithful. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel.